You are listening to the Truth Talk Podcast with Kathy Crabhanna. Hello and welcome, and I'm Kathy Crabhanna, and I'm glad you joined me today. I'm coming to you from a hotel room in Springdale, Arkansas, and it's, I think it's like seven degrees It's outside. so cold, yes. And uh, I'm... I'm excited. We have teamed up with the Gather Podcast Network to bring you this Truth Talk podcast that I felt like I was supposed to do for two or three years, but I didn't know how to do it. And then somebody approaches us and said, you need to do a podcast. Yes, I'm in. So here we are um, with our first one. And I'm really, really excited to have my girls, two of my granddaughters, I call them the two broke girls. <laughs> they're 22 and trying to be adults. But they're in a hotel room with me in Springdale, Arkansas, and we're going to bring you like a true, crazy... True crime. Almost a true crime story. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, honestly, you may not believe it, so you don't want to leave. Before we go into the story, I'm supposed to tell you this, so I'm going to tell you this. Make sure you like, subscribe, share, and leave a rating and a review, a five-star review if possible. So we can make it to the top of the podcast charts because you know what? We feel like we've got something to say. We have a family of about 34 people, immediate family. We got a lot of stuff going on and we try our best to tell you the truth. So here goes. Girls, how are y'all feeling this morning? Feeling good. I've got Cameron. Hello. Isaac Zandris, my 22-year-old granddaughter, one of the two broke girls. Yes, one of the two broke girls. <laughs> These girls both just purchased small homes in the Nashville area, yeah. which, as you know, is like almost an impossibility. Yeah. You almost have to be a zillionaire <laughs> to much. buy a house. Hence why we are the two broke girls. Two broke girls. So this is my oldest daughter's middle daughter. And then we have Lauren Hope. I think Lauren sounds like... You know, old Hollywood. So okay, we're I'll take it. Lauren Hope Bowling, <laughs> who is my middle daughter's oldest daughter. Yeah. That was that's I get even <laughs> confused myself. Um, I have seventeen grandchildren and two great grandchildren. And uh, if you all even get, if you get a gift or I get your name right, I feel like you're. In it's a an accomplishment. It's yeah, an accomplishment. It's a win. It's a win. So um, she we, shockingly does a good job remembering everybody's birthdays, remembering all the anniversary. Like she does a. I'm always very impressed I, that she can just recall it all. I I got that gift from my mother. I don't know if y'all know that or not. <laughs> really, but my mother, even her nieces, nephews, and she was one of ten children. So her nieces and nephews was you know like four thousand people or something. <laughs> the whole and town. She called them, and they will if they hear this podcast and wherever they live, they will say, "Yeah, that's right." But she would call them, no matter where they lived, mm -hmm. at 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning oh on the goodness. day of their birthday. That was her oh thing. <laughs> she may not do another thing for you the whole year, but she's going to remember that birthday. And she's going to call you at the Buck Pack of Dawn. Yes. If you were not an early riser, you were not uh, going to escape the wrath of Elaine's birthday call. Oh, my goodness. So that is something I kind of get from my mom. Today, we're going to talk about... Cameron posed a question to me. Cameron, about a, she said this about a week ago. And I'm going to let her fire that question out. And it just got me, got the kind of the memories rolling and kind of got my mind wrapped around this episode. And so I'm like, let's make this our first episode. Yeah. Um, we were talking about, you know, like she said, Hope and I just bought our first houses separately. And 
a lot of the cousins are getting to that age now where they're adults and they're all turning 18 and they're going to college and doing all the things. And it kind of dawned on me that most people, their first adult experience or they're, as they are walking into adulthood, they're, they're concerned with things like packing for college and getting a girlfriend or a boyfriend and, you know, getting a job where they're making more than minimum wage and all of the, you know, regular exciting adulthood things. And Kathy's first adult experience was the story we're about to tell and how that molded her entire life and how that, that entryway into adulthood had totally changed, you know, the way your, your whole life. It changed my whole life, my children's whole life, and probably everything about your life. You just, it's when we're, when we're living our lives, we have these foundational, what I call these building blocks, like just imagine a house with a really tall foundation, all these concrete blocks under it. Maybe there's basement. It's really lots of blocks. And then on top of that, you have your living. Your living is all based on those blocks. And this is probably the primary concrete block of my entire life, which would then, we could spill over and talk about the lives of many other people and the career choices and the ministry directions and all of that. But let's get into it. You want to start? Yes. Have you guys always... This has kind of been a family folklore story. It has. I feel like... I mean, I mean we've known about it for the longest time. I mean, at, at a certain age. I don't think they told us when they were, we were kids mm-hmm. or anything. But it's so crazy. Like, I am into all these true crime podcasts and shows. And it's crazy to think that, like, you actually have a personal story that is just, like, horrific and... Could have been so detrimental. My friend Crystal Burchett always said, you cannot make this stuff up. No. As Cameron said, I was, just to give you the little background to the background. When I was 13 years old, my father died of a heart attack suddenly. We got a phone call. He had, he was on the phone on Sunday at work, at workaholic, similar gene pool I'm sure that I have. <laughs> And on a Sunday afternoon, someone that worked for him was on the phone with him. He, he immediately stopped talking and they heard the phone drop. And he was 140 pounds, thin, didn't drink or smoke. Gosh. Most likely had the same valve, bad heart valve that I have. Um, when they got there, he was dead on arrival. Of course, they got an ambulance to his office. He was at an, in his office complex. He was sitting in his office chair, and he had slumped over, and he had had a, a you know, massive heart attack. And um, most likely the heart valve was the culprit, not the arteries and the mm-hmm. plaque. Not that it matters, but then as time progressed, I ended up with the same thing. So then, then right. my doctors are going, aha. Mm-hmm. They didn't have diagnoses, or they did not right. have a surgery in those days. So they called it heart failure, but it was probably this bad valve that you and your sister had. All right, so he had passed away at the, and when I was 13, and my mom had gone through this era of confusion. And when I think when you're young and your spouse dies, a lot of people just run. So my mom had tried this and tried that and moved here and moved there. Um, you, you know, buying a house here, buying a house there, moving from this town to that town. And it was, my life was in complete, I just want to say, complete disarray. My, I didn't even go to high school. And this was not, I mean, I didn't grow up in 
1920. You know what I'm saying? Not that they had high schools in 1920 as well. I didn't grow up in 1912 where there were no schools. This is 1970s. Everybody went to high school. Everybody went to college. I was a very good student until I wasn't a student. And my mom's life collapsed. So she ended up moving me to a rural area about 100 miles from where where I'd grown up and kind of put me in the care of an aunt who was, you know, great, fed me well, and I was exposed to a lot of musical things and that sort of thing. But I had no, my foundation was very rocky. So I got a job when I was 15 um, and and was working a part-time job. Bumped into a guy at a restaurant. It's called Myers Restaurant, if you guys want the history on that. It was in Hartford, Kentucky, and they served the best, the best chicken and dressing. You know how you make it in one pan? Yes. And then they had gravy on it. Mm. And I was not, I was like a little skinny girl back then. But today on this side of being a skinny girl, I can go, man, I wish I had that recipe. But that dressing was phenomenal. And I was sitting there with my cousin having lunch. And this guy walks in. And he was cute and nice. And he asked me to go on a date. And we got married. Not that day. (laughs) But... You know, in a relatively short period of time. Right. I was 17 years old. I found myself married. But the thing that attracted me to him was that his family had dinner time and they cooked. And scene. I hadn't had any normalcy. Yeah, yeah. I'd been a, like a vagabond child yeah. for four years. A vagabond child. Kind of here, there, everywhere. Not <laughs> a real... You know, I had family. They loved me. But it was very... Dis- it was very in much in disarray. Right. When my dad died. My entire family was in disarray. My Your stability old, was gone. I was the baby of yeah. four children. And all of us were in disarray. My siblings were in disarray. My brother became a horrific alcoholic. He was only 21 years old. He was... It was, it was very sad. Anyway. So that's the background. So here we are, September 5th, 1973. I've been married three weeks. Three. We had moved into what we call in Kentucky a mobile home. I've heard people say a trailer house. We, we, I, don't, I don't do the trailer house. I say a mobile home. <laughs> it's a mobile. And, my, and we weren't poor. My mother had access to uh, funds because... My dad ran a big business and there was all kinds of funds available and the state was still not settled. And she could draw funds and she would draw funds and buy, she bought me a mobile home. <laughs> she bought me a nice car. So it wasn't, I was a pitiful, poverty-stricken girl. I was just a girl looking for normal, right. looking for something that mattered in my life. So on September 5th, I was married three weeks walking um, kind of in this expectation of, oh, I was 17 and a half, by the way. I did, if I hadn't say that. I was 17 and a half. So I'm walking into this moment in my life. We had thrown together this quickie wedding, and I, and I wasn't pregnant. It wasn't a quickie wedding because I was pregnant. It was because we were just not real on top of things. <laughs> and my sister... I had a reception in her backyard, and I feel like that I got thrown in the pool at my own wedding reception or oh something. My but it was, you know, we were just kids. Right. We were just children. So that's the environment, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to maybe 
become, we're gonna, I'm gonna find normal. So I think I heard a dog bark. We are in a hotel. There may be somebody that has <laughs> snuck a dog into the room next door. Just don't, <laughs> don't worry, don't ignore the dog. Um, September 5th, I am in my Z28 yellow Camaro that my mother had bought me, 350 engine. The guys would, today would, would literally slobber over this car. <laughs> my boys would slobber over this car. My husband would slobber over this car. <laughs> he would. He would want this car. And I'm driving that car because that was, you know, I enjoyed that. And I, I was out just doing a little bit of driving and I thought, I'm going to go. Um, I had a friend that was an orphan. Both her parents had passed away when she was young. She was my age, and in this weird season of my life, I didn't go to school, so I didn't have this huge group of friends like most of y'all had. Mm -hmm. I had, you know, two or three friends, a kind of a weird existence. Yeah. Cousins, a couple of cousins. She was in the hospital, and I decided I was going to stop by and take her a milkshake. I'm pretty sure that chocolate shake cures almost everything. Pretty much everything, <laughs> yeah. So I went to the Dairy Queen and got the good kind. I mean, there was no McDonald's then. We had nothing. We had a little, the little Myers restaurant, and then we had the Dairy Queen. Population 2000, Hartford, Kentucky. I run in and take her that milkshake and visit with her a minute. While I'm there, I had my clothes in the laundromat, which was a block away, because we didn't have a washer and dryer yet. I'm not sure if we... We're going to get one or if we just decided the laundromat was going to do. I don't recall. But I had dropped them in and put my clothes in the washer and I took all of them at one time because, you know, I was kind of young and stupid and didn't realize, <laughs> wait, I got to wash all that stuff. So I probably had three weeks worth. I'm just going to be real. She had every machine. And probably had every machine. I don't know, maybe two or three. And so I dropped my clothes in and I go see her, take her the fabulous Dairy Queen large extra chocolate milkshake and visit with her a minute and I will interject that anytime somebody's lost their parents after I lost my dad I I break and I and even even in in this moment in 2022 where I've just had friends who have passed away and they've left minor children or not minor children, but my, it's a special break for me. So this girl was special to me. And I said, do you want me to go back and get you a cheeseburger? And she said, yes. So I jumped up and said, I'm going to go put my clothes in the dryer, multitask, you know, make every moment count with the hyperactivity of my norm. Don't waste time. When I was a little girl, I had always got talks too much on my report card. But I always got used this time wisely. Just a little sidebar <laughs> for you girls. So at least you can do both. Yeah. Use this time wisely. So I was using time wisely, and I went to, I, was, I, I walked out of the hospital right at dusk on that day. In my white Levi's, I, I walked out of the hospital at dusk on this Wednesday night, September 5th, 1973. And this is a town that we didn't lock our doors. We didn't lock our cars. We 
I don't even think most people locked their doors when they went to sleep. Oh, it was a so very crazy. different time. Yeah. And I walked out into that dusky, you know, the there was some, you know what it means when there's just that Indian summer, just a little bit of daylight, right. but it's not, it's pretty. And it was one of those nights. I mean, I can remember it vividly, which is bizarre. But I walk out and think nothing of anything except I'm going to get a cheeseburger. Hallelujah. And I go to my car and I have a habit that I still possess of that I'm always in, uh, trying to get to the next move in my life and I don't ever get my car door. I, I, I will sit in my car, even right now I do it all the time. I sit in the car, I turn on the ignition and then I shut my door. Okay. Right. So on this particular night, I did the normal. I jumped in that hot rod, yellow, <laughs> bright yellow canary or yellow Z28. The keys were already in it. I start the car. I you just left your keys in it while uh, you were inside? Everybody did. You left your keys in your car? Yes. Oh, my gosh. That was norm. That was what people... I mean, wow. we didn't lock our doors. I mean, everybody... Not only did you not lock them, but you left the keys in, so it truly no, was... I mean, anybody could just take yeah. whatever. We didn't lock our doors at night at our homes. I mean, it was crazy. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I, you know, maybe we did sometimes, but not all the time. Shows no. the time in rural Kentucky what you rural, did. I mean, you you just didn't. There, We didn't even have... Um, we didn't even have deadbolts. You know how you just right. have a door and you the just have a little lock. Yeah. little turny thing oh and you can goodness. use a credit card to open it? That's the when we leave when we left Beaver Dam and moved to Nashville in 2003, we did not have deadbolts. We just had those little turny doorknobs mm-hmm. thingies, whatever they're called. That is insane. <laughs> and we didn't we didn't understand why people would have a deadbolt. I mean, I, I don't think any of our families have them. Yeah. So anyway, so this is 1973. I, I'm My car started. I go to close my door, and there's a hand, a large hand on my door. And, you know, when you have, a, when you have the, one of these moments... It's very hard to explain, but you, it, and I think it's probably a little bit spiritual and a whole lot physical. But your spirit knows when somebody's coming for you. Right. My seventeen-year-old spirit, who had experienced, as Cameron said, very little in life, and I'm just starting to enter the adult realm of trying to adult, and I wasn't versed in life, but my spirit knew that this person was to harm, was there to harm Different. me. My spirit knew. This guy's about six foot four. I mean, tall. I mean, maybe six foot two, but tall. You know, much taller than an average man. His hand is on my door on the inside, and he says, scoot over. And I didn't say anything. I think I probably immediately went into the shock mode. I'm sure. I know he's going to, I knew he was going to, harm me, right. kill me. And he says to me, 
If you scream, I will kill you. I can hear the words in my head right now. I wish I could get them. I wish I could have that voice and let everybody hear yeah. this voice in my head. If you scream, I will kill you. I'm driving. I can't imagine what must have been racing through your head in that moment. Well, your adrenaline, you know, they, that that flight, fight, whatever that right. phrase. Flight, yeah. yeah, that phrase is, is a real thing. Kicks in. Well, you don't, and you don't think through. I've been in that circumstance a couple of times. Like, uh, there's another bear story. Y'all know the story. <laughs> but, and that same thing happened then. But, um, well, he didn't, the bear didn't threaten to, to no, kill you if you I, screamed. I thought the bear was going to kill me. But that, you don't, you certainly don't have the comprehension to connect the dots. Right. But your, your instincts and reflexes just go on high alert. So, I screamed a blood if I if I screamed the blood curdling scream that I screamed that day to this microphone it would blow it up. Yeah, it would probably also make everybody tune out and never come back. <laughs> but um, it was I can hear my scream in my ears right now. Honestly, I could just I could almost have a meltdown. I'm I'm starting a little PTSD just at, right. in telling the story. But I screamed, and it wasn't like I it wasn't like my in my head I'm going oh I think I'll scream now. It was this. Your it was this reaction. scream that that I've heard when my neighbor's son drowned, and the police came to her door. Yeah. And I saw, I watched when they knocked on the door. I knew the I knew the news because I'd gotten the news first. Yeah. And I watched them knock on the door, and tell her that her son was found in the bottom of the swimming pool, at the at the local community swimming pool. It was that scream, that same. Mm -hmm. Scream of unbelievable that you're, it's hard to believe a human right. can scream like that, but that was what came out of my mouth. Where like a hundred percent of your soul is in it. Yeah, yeah. Like it's and, not something you can just casually. And what happened? What happened to this six foot whatever tall two three four big man that was going to literally take me out and? I can't swear he wasn't just going to kill me, but I think he was going to rape me and then kill me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was 105 pounds and I was 17. I, yeah. I wasn't quite the 66-year-old version yeah. that I am today. Right. So it today I don't worry so much about someone taking me out for, um, you know, something that they're going to do to my body. In those days, that could have been the real reason, you know, my girls are laughing at me, but it's, it's true. I don't think I'm quite the, the attractive <laughs> teenager anymore, but at, on this day, you know, it, he was certainly had an ulterior motive, probably just in, beyond murder. And he was going to take you to an unknown an, location right. and, you know, well, you know, a 1973 Camaro, there's a, there's a console. You don't just scoot over. So, right. I would have had I would have had to crawled over. First of all, that was not real smart on his part. But that that blood curdling scream stopped traffic. He, in his humanity, he didn't expect the level of volume that that was happening. Right. At the very same time, instinctively, I literally put my foot to the floorboard of a third. You're all. Engines on your cars are probably about two horsepower. Uh, that's not true. 
but it, there's it's but this is a 350 horsepower engine yeah it's like a jet airplane engine yeah <laughs> and i put power you know in an airplane how when that they're revving up the engine and it's like really loud it at some point on the takeoff mm -hmm. sometimes sometimes maybe mm -hmm. not all the time but it's like you're going whoa well i floorboarded this car and it had these really loud mufflers so the volume of noise that came from me doing putting my foot on that gas pedal took it to the floor and held it there wow. and then my scream at the same time there's no way to probably describe the level of noise. So he is shocked at this noise. So he, I guess, immediately decides this is not the one. He's just going to kill me rather than take me out and do his, do his whatever his whatever was. He expected you to comply. And be he quiet. expected me to comply. Yeah. He expected me to be another victim. Mm -hmm and his most likely trail of victims. So I remember that he had on these, he had on, like he looked like a very presentable human. Really? This is 73 and he had on nice khaki pants and a polo shirt. Mm -hmm. Late 20s, maybe even early 30s, but you know, older than me, but not old. Not middle-aged. Not like a 50 or 60-year-old. No. He wasn't trying to hide his appearance or change his appearance. No. Yeah. Probably not what people are envisioning when they picture no. this right. story. Yeah. No. He looked like a local businessman. Someone you could trust. Yeah. Yeah. He just looked like a very normal person. But his spirit did not project, and certainly yeah. then his words and actions did not the 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 lesson if anybody is listening to me and i read a i read something recently about the profile of a killer is not always the profile of a killer mm -hmm. right and just if something is out of whack be so ever so cautious anyway back to september 5th 1973 he he took his you know out of the out of the peripheral of my left eye I could see his hand, and you know, it's not like this. This this is a, a second and a half. It's right. not like it's fourteen minutes. His left hand swiped into his pocket, and I'm in the driver's seat, and he brushed across me. I, I remember the, the feeling that he brushed across me, across you know, my face and my neck, but I'm in shock. Right. By this time, I'm in shock. And I mean, I'm not aware of it yet, but I had, I had peed on myself. I'm sure if I had had anything ready for a bowel movement, I would have had that as well. Mm -hmm. um, sorry for the TMI, but that's what happens when you go into shock. Right. Yeah, that's what happens. So I don't real. all I know is... And then he runs. There was a how I'm in the hospital parking lot in Hartford, Kentucky. And if you're looking straight ahead at the hospital, the lobby was, I was two, two spaces or three spaces from the front door of the lobby. So I'm right there. It's a third, it was at that time like a 38 bed hospital, tiny little place. There are no doctors on call. It's just staffed with nurses and tech, you know, tech people. 
And if you're looking, start at the hospital, he ran to the left. There was always a, ran a brick ranch, red brick ranch house that sat in that corner. And I can't recall who owned that house. But those ladies, rumor had it, and I think this came to my mother, so I think it was more than rumor. They were sitting in the back patio, their terrace. Well, uh, to do folk, as we would say in Beaverdam and Hartford, <laughs> having, I think, a bridge party. Mm. And they heard somebody run through the backyard. So this man was on foot. My goodness. Just for the record, he was on foot. He ran through their backyard, so they say, and he, he did run in that direction, and he would have had to have run somewhere. Mm -hmm. So suddenly he's gone. I'm sure for about three seconds, I'm terrified to get out of the car. Right. Afraid he's waiting behind my car, you know? Yeah. But I felt that I saw him kind of flash that way. But in this moment, I'm starting to be... Um, and you girls have not done this, but I'm, I'm starting to feel like I'm going to lose consciousness. Yeah. yeah. I'm starting to feel the oozy, woozy mm -hmm. of what happens before you pass out. And, and I don't know. I, don't, I guess I don't understand it. And I just felt I had to get into the hospital. And, I, and, and my, I remember thinking my initial thing was I've got to tell them there's a killer out here. So I... I he think I've I've kind of slumped, and I'm sure he thought he had killed me. Right. I get out of my car, and I get to the front door of the hospital, and I I hadn't really told this part of the story. I don't know if I've ever said it, but I remember opening and seeing the face of someone in that lobby. And that kind of just came to me the other day. Like, I don't think I'd ever processed that piece of information. And, the, and the, there was terror, you know. Bolt through the lobby, open the door to where, the, where they called the nurse's station, which was kind of the hub of the nursing. Small little tiny place. And there was a lady there that I knew. It was a pastor's wife, local lady, um, that... I didn't know her well, but I knew who she was. She was the charge nurse. And she looks at me, and the trauma on her face was is emblazed in my mind. I can see her face right now, and I'm sure <clears throat> she's probably not even living now. That's We're talking 50, almost 50 years ago. But she, she says, she looks at me and she says, oh my God, she's going to die. And I'm thinking, why am I going to die? You didn't realize you were hurt. I didn't realize I was hurt. Yeah. I did take a glance down and somewhere in the peripheral vision of all of these things and me starting to feel like I'm going to be unconscious. From my car to the nurse's station. I mean, this sounds like a long episode of time. It's probably 20 seconds. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's as far as from here to the end of the hotel room. Yeah. I mean, not the hotel room, but to the to the stairwell. It's it's right there. Mm -hmm. So, she says, "Oh my God, she's going to die." And at that moment, I I remember thinking, "Why are my jeans? I don't white Levi's. Why are my jeans red?" My goodness. 
they were red. They yeah. were all, they were completely, they weren't, I'm not talking a red drop or a red streak. I'm talking they are red. And I don't recall the shirt, and because, but the white was so clearly not white anymore. And right. I guess white just soaks up color faster than a navy, maybe a navy blue shirt or something that I probably had on. And then I start to just wooze. They throw me on a gurney at this nurse's station and get me down to the ER, which is, you know, mm-hmm. 60 feet. It's right. not far. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm floating in and out of maybe some consciousness in that moment. I realize, then I start saying, am I going to die? Am I going to die? Am I going to die? And, and nobody would tell me no. Mm-hmm. Nobody would tell me no. Right. I, I guess they thought I was dying. You know, I was bleeding so much. You had to be losing so much. Wow. And my Aunt Nett, who is still living, by the way, she's in her 90s. She worked in Central Supply at the hospital. Like, she was the lady that brought the, you know, the fresh, I guess, the fresh supplies to each room. Right. And she worked in the hospital. Somebody had gone and gotten her. And she came to the ER, and, and of course, she's in shock. But she gets in my face, and she says, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. Yeah. You're not going to die. Cat, you're not going to die. And while that's going on, in walks a doctor. Well, there are no doctors there at night. We all knew that. Everybody in the community knew that. If you had a, an emergency, they had to call in a doctor. And if there was a, an accident or, you know, a shooting or something like that, they would had a rotation of the local physicians. There were probably only five physicians at the time in that whole area, that county. Well, I'm lying there, and this Dr. Price, who passed away just a short few years ago, walks in and he says that, he, he first comes to me and says, you know, oh my word, what happened to you? And got right to stitching and trying to, you know, put, think, you know, compress this area. But before he got into the stitching, and he was a believer. I didn't really know the family, um, but I know they were Christian people. But before he got into the stitching and, and, try, and trying to make me understand the severity of what had just happened to me, he took my fingers, This my what are, what are these two fingers called, girls? Middle and your pointer. pointer. My, middle and my pointer. And he, he took my hand and he put it, placed it on my neck. And the shock of what it felt like I can like right now I can't hardly hold it back the it, the PTSD is kind of on me again but it was this was just open and all Gosh. you could feel was sticky flesh it would you know just imagine taking an animal and just splitting it open and then looking at how that looks all that flesh and yeah. blood it was blood I mean it was, I was just I had bled and he put my finger on that and he said, I don't know anything to say to you except that you should have died. 
And he said, I want you to feel that right there. And he said, you feel that? You feel that? Your heart is beating. You feel that? It was my jugular vein. Mm-hmm. My goodness. And, and it had nothing on it. It was ex- completely exposed. It was as if though you had ripped back all the flesh from it. And it was just as exposed as if we were like, we had a straw laying here that we could just yeah. touch the straw. Right. Because actually it's just, a, it is just a, it's like a straw. Your blood just sucks up yeah. through that and keeps you alive. He said, that's your jugular vein. And all this other flesh and stuff we can sew up and where you're gonna look fine. It'll be all right in 10 years. <laughs> You'll look all right in 10 years. <laughs> but that, I've never seen anything like that as many years as I've been a physician. There's, that that vein is completely exposed. And if that, if this, if this cut had gone I mean, I would have to assume one millimeter deeper or if you'd had gotten pricked on your way in the hospital, if you'd fallen. Yeah. But that that jugular vein is completely intact. That's almost impossible to believe. Yeah. And then he said to me, I don't know. I don't know what God's got for your life, girl. But I'd say it's going to be good. That's amazing. So, I couldn't really process all this. And he said, what, are you, what were you cut with? And I said, I don't know. I sounded like Addie. That's, she's five. She goes, I don't know. <laughs> I said, don't know. And he said, this is the cleanest cut I've ever seen. What, what did he have a knife? 43 stitches. Yeah, from the center of my chin. All the way to my ear. Wow. So what felt like a brushed hue was really your skin being torn open. Right. F- 43 stitches and I, and it's as if though somebody was taking you to surgery. Yeah. And you like cut your throat. Hey Truth Talk listeners, Kathy and the family tour and host an event called Stronger On Tour, which is very much a one night revival for your church or women's group. The music is world class, the speakers are dynamic, and the evening is pure encouragement for you and your city. If you would like to bring the evangelistic team of the Crab Women to your city, you can. Occasionally, the guys show up, and that's awesome as well. For more information, go to www.kathycrabhanna.com. That's www.kathycrabhanna.com. They're bringing a revival of truth to America, one city at a time. And he said, any idea what this was? And I said, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen anything. I feel like I know what it looked like, but I was so uncertain of myself. And he showed me a scalpel, a surgery scalpel. Wow. And I said, that's it. He said, okay, you were cut with a scalpel. That's why it's clean. Mm-hmm. That's why you didn't know you were cut. You didn't have pain. It was it was quick and precise and deep mm-hmm. and deep. That person thinks you're dead. Yeah. He thinks you're dead. He sewed my throat up. I was probably about 
you know, if we're walking, I was probably about 10 steps from an insane moment. And literally in a terrible mental condition just immediately. Yeah. They stabilized my health. They gave me lots and lots of medicine, tranquilizers, hardcore tranquilizers, and things that they don't even give to people these days. Yeah. It was right. drugs it was the that 70s. Are, <laughs> it was the 70s. Put me in a room. I put a state police guard outside my door mm-hmm. of the hospital. The town's buzzing. The gossip is swirling, I'm confident. People are scared. On this night, the doors are locked. News has traveled. There's murder on the loose. They start questioning me the night of the event. And I don't want to sound ugly, but it was 1973, and it's Kentucky, it's rural America. And they start trying to suggest who did this. They come in and they start asking me questions, and I said he. I gave him a complete description the night of the, the night of the attempted murder. Khakis, polo shirt. I mean, upstanding citizen on the outside. I think I even described his shoes, but if I'm not. You know, if I'm not off base there, I think I did. And they're like, oh, are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. I don't know anybody who looked like that would do that. I'm sure. Are you sure it would? They didn't say an African-American man, but that was the innuendo. That's what they were insinuating. They yeah. used a very racist, more wow. racist term. No, it was not an African-American man. I think they used the term black. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, it's Kentucky, and that was probably their better choice in Mm -hmm. those days. No, it was not a black man. Well, was it that that little husband you've married? No, it was not. I think I would know him. Right. They didn't believe you even though no, you got... No. So then they go through a laundry list of local uh, hooligans. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't have gangs in those days. But it was a laundry list of people that had been involved in drugs and things like that. And I said, no. Every... Pre- no. Well, so instead of listening to me, they completely shut me down. Wow. The bigger problem, I think, in this whole life scenario, and there's many problems that sprung from an unsolved attempted murder. Mm -hmm. There's many problems that came from this, and many problems. We still have them today. Tonight, if I go out in that parking lot (laughs) after church, and somebody comes up behind me, there's a a problem. Yeah. They're going down. Or they're going to be very embarrassed if they try to hurt, if they right. come up behind me. Mm-hmm. There's there's never-ending problems. But one of the biggest problems is that I lost so much faith. I got so became so jaded, 
at the fairness of adults believing yeah. the story of a 17-year-old. Well, their yeah. closed-mindedness yes. botched this investigation. That botched it. The, it. There were fingerprints all over my car. Oh, my Now, gosh. think about that. The, we had fingerprints in 73. Right. We had a way to fingerprint somebody and say, oh, that's your fingerprint. Oop, you must have done that. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, the night of the incident... There are fingerprints on my car. I mean, I'm not a detective. I'm, I'm a stupid 17-year-old girl. Yeah. Knows very little about anything. But I knew there were fingerprints on my car. Right. And they're like, are you sure? My car door was still open. Mm-hmm. My car was still running. Oh, my gosh. Did they ever dust for prints? They said, well, it started raining. And we missed those. Oh my goodness! And this is, and it didn't start raining. I don't know. I could go back and probably look at the weather pattern and know the answer, but it didn't start raining for at least an hour. Yeah. Or two. It was a very botched mess. Mm-hmm. And, this must have been infuriating. Well, I was, I was so upset. And you know, this is '73 when, you know, even people in those days that were molested by their own fathers. And that's not what we're talking about, but it was handled the same way. Mm-hmm. Oh, just, we can't blow up the family. Right. We can't destroy, your dad's a deacon. We can't yeah. destroy his place in the church. I mean, this, I, I know, I know at 66, yeah. what other people went through. Mm-hmm. as teenagers and children in 60s and 70s because we were so accustomed to sweeping everything under the rug mm-hmm. and children were just commonly not believed mm-hmm. or it was too inconvenient. Yeah. Right. I mean, on this side of life, as I look at the stories I know of church people that are my age that grew up with molestation situations that were just horrendous their mother knew and their mother couldn't didn't do anything and said she couldn't do anything. So I'm not in that situation, but I'm in a situation where I'm in a small town, population 2000 people, and even my own family. I think they totally believed me. They were angry, they were furious, they were um my brother said, you know, I'll find him and kill him. You know, he was <laughs> big and bad at the ripe old age of 25. Right. Uh, was known to carry a joke of Jack Daniels in his car and <laughs> or Jim Beam. I, I kind of get them mixed up. But, you know, quite a character. And the people that know him will know and will, are going, they're going right now. She's right. <laughs> quite a character. But at the same time, you know... Nobody's going to really go out and kill somebody. Right. Um, so I'm in the hospital. Let's, let, let me, I'm getting derailed, but I'm in the hospital. I'm medicated at this point. I really think the tranquilizers were kind of to just shut me down. Yeah. Because I keep saying, do this, do that, do this, yeah. do that. I'm, I'm getting. You were still Kathy. <laughs> I was being so, yeah, I was still Kathy, and I was trying to. I was trying to get somebody to move on this thing and, yeah. and to get this guy before he did this to another girl. Right. Maybe the next day. I, I, so the medication started pouring in and I became pretty sedated. And I, I don't, the next few days are kind of not all that much to, to remember. I don't re- recall much of anything. About three or four days 
after I was in the hospital, somebody puts a newspaper, we had a weekly newspaper, they throw a newspaper on my, on my tray, you know, where you put your food that you're, you're not eating. <laughs> um, and in that newspaper was a picture and I start screaming. And there is, and remember there's a police guard outside my door. Mm-hmm. And I start screaming and get my family member to go, I think it's my mom, to go get somebody. I said, that's him. The man in the newspaper, that's him. So they go and get the detective to come back. And I said, that's him. You have your man. Okay. They went to the man. They put him at the scene on the night of the attack. They put him at the scene in the same clothing I described. The colors, the style. They put him at the scene in the parking lot. We had our man. We had our man. But guess what? He had only been in town about two weeks. He was renting a house about a walk from the hospital. And he had an alibi that he conjured up within about six hours. Wow. That said she was with him in the medicine room giving him a shot. And the time was off by five minutes. So he couldn't have been guilty. They sent him home, turned him loose. End of story. Life goes on. They didn't Sorry, girl. Oh Sorry, girl. Five minutes off. Now, this is not digital clocks. And these are people that are just remembering. I said, well, did she talk to him? I mean, how do we know? She, she wrote down she gave him a shot at, you know, whatever time, 720. Okay. How, does, how do we know that that was that she didn't talk to him for, you know, 20 minutes and then go, oh, I don't really know what time I gave that. I don't really know what time he got here. I don't really know what time he left. Or how do we know that she didn't get busy and go to the bathroom and then come back and go, I don't really know what time I gave that shot. This is not, this, this was not the days of digital clocks and cameras. This was just somebody going, oh, or was it, that man couldn't be guilty of that. He looks like an upstanding guy. Right. The community has embraced this man. He didn't do that. I'm not going to let, I'm not going to allow this man's life to be ruined by a 17-year-old girl that may or may not know what she's talking about. That might be a psycho. She might be the psychotic one. So we're not going to allow his life to be ruined. He has child and you know, he has a wife, and we're not going to do that. No, he's not. He was, I was in the medicine room with him. So we enter into a, a, a phase of, 
You're going to have to live with this. You're going to have to get over it. Yeah. He lives 1.2 miles from your house. That's so crazy. But you're going to have to deal with it. You're 17 and a half years old. You're still going to just have to deal. Yeah. You get to get over it, sis. He has an alibi. I felt as if every piece of life in me had been snuffed out. I was mad. I felt like every adult was crap. Yeah. I was not mad at my mom, but I felt like somewhere in me that she could have and should have maybe done something. Like somebody should have been fighting harder. And to, uh-huh. to feel yeah. like the, the police, who that's literally their job, didn't even do it. And you know, I love, I am a big supporter of police officers. Y'all know that yes, about me. Absolutely. I am a big, 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 big supporter of police officers. Which tells you that somewhere in my heart in the last 50 years, I have found a tremendous amount of grace. Yeah. And I have just, and those police officers weren't horrible people, but they were so set in the mindset of the 70s, mm-hmm. of the era of, and it was almost a class system. And we weren't low class people. My mom had money, but we were from outside. We moved back to this area after my dad died. We weren't, I grew up in a different town 100 miles away. We weren't entrenched in that community. And the locals had welcomed this man in for a specific reason. Mm -hmm. And he was set in in a place of class because of the reason he was in town, yeah. the reason he had moved to this town. It, it, it literally set him into a place of, mm-hmm. of having a, a higher class um, respect than maybe a guy that's down here working, digging a ditch. Right. And I wasn't, I was a kid. Everybody was like, oh, she's a kid, you know. Mm-hmm. So life's already tough. And the depression was so real. I couldn't, I couldn't even, so, so my husband, he was a child as well. He was 19, I was 17, we were children. But he had to go back to work. <clears throat> so what am I gonna do? I mean, my mom's kind of there and then she's kind of living, she's got a house in another town and my sister Anita was there and I could stay with her and that was good. She was help, very helpful. But those in those days, nobody got up on a soapbox and said, we ain't taking it. We ain't doing it. We're going to do something about this. Everybody just kind of shrieked back into their little hole and were like, okay, let's, you know. It's just the way it is. It's just yeah. the way it is. I'm not a just the way it is person. That's not who God made me to be. (laughs) And I don't do well with that's just the way it is. But in this case, Mm -hmm. I felt as if somebody had taken both my hands and tied them behind my back, tied my feet together and put a muzzle over my mouth and tied me in a corner. And that was my plight. And I began to fight devils for my mental health. I didn't understand that's what I was doing. I didn't know the lingo of mental health was it not a 2022 where everybody has, you know, I'm going to be intentional and I'm going to be, I'm going to do self-care. We didn't the have conversation wasn't there yet. N- yeah. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. There was no mental health conversations, period. Yeah. At all. There were no counselors. There were no therapists. 
there were no psychologists, there were no psychiatrists. It was just here, sedate yourself. Right. Yeah. Within about of just a few weeks, maybe a couple, I don't know, a couple of three weeks from the attack, the attempted murder, I was very sick and I kept throwing up and just, I couldn't get better. I just, it was terrible. And I, and I didn't know, I didn't know if I was just never going to be well again or what. I didn't know what was going on. So mom took me to the doctor, to old Dr. Norsworthy there in Hartford. And, you know, they did blood tests in those days to identify about everything. You know, we didn't have anything mm -hmm. anymore um, sophisticated. And he, he comes back and says, um, you're sick because you're pregnant. Oh my goodness. You're sick because you're pregnant. Yeah. So here I am now, married six, seven weeks. I'm 17 and a half. And my, as Cameron said in the beginning of this podcast, mm -hmm. my ushering into the door of adulting has now consisted of someone trying to murder me in a parking lot and cutting my throat. And I'm now pregnant at 17 and a half. The, I was on the pill, but during the, the days in the hospital with the psychotic drugs they were giving me, I'm confident that those, I didn't take those pills. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've tried to think back a thousand and a million or a million times and there's no way to remember, but I'm confident I did not take them. I doubt I took anything. I doubt I even ate because I was pretty much sedated. So when you don't take pills, I guess they don't work. So I assumed I got pregnant, you know, maybe two weeks later, which then I got to thinking, like, I don't know if that's even possible. Yeah. So then the doctor, I go to an OB doctor, and he says, no, you are this many weeks, which takes me back to being pregnant the week I got married. That's crazy. So when you do that math, I was pregnant when I took all those drugs. I was pregnant when I got my throat cut, and then my body went in, a, and I was probably... A little bit pregnant mm -hmm. you know like days right my body is in trauma and shock and then they they've loaded me down with all of these drugs that you can't give pregnant women I've been loaded down with them for days and days and days and days so I'm now in the office of an uh, dr. Harrison in Owensboro who delivered crystal and I'm in his office and he he wants to know he, he gets all of my medical information from this you know at that time y'all I had stitches in my throat mm -hmm. and the even when they took the stitches out I have a I have my throat is cut I look like I'm going to be in a Halloween yeah movie I mean Still it, new. It, it, it is it is just it is horrific and everybody I would walk into, they would gasp, you know, if they saw me on the street and was not somebody that was in the family or whatever, they would gasp at this throat. Well, of course, this doctor's like, what in the world happened? And oh, I read about that in the paper. And 
And so he said, I want to know the medicines they gave you. He got the list and he came back and he said to me at the appointment, he said, you have been on drugs that are not okay for pregnant women. And they cause birth defects. Yeah. And they're, they're pretty horrific. And um, you need to know that. I, I think the chances of you having a normal child are very, very slim. I talked a lot about limbs, missing limbs, and uh, all kinds of really awful things. And my mom was with me, always, and we left there. My mom was really a, really known to be kind of a negative Nellie. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all remember, right? Yes. Always. Worry, a worrier. Yeah. A worrier. Maybe a somebody. family trait. A family trait, yeah. <laughs> and I cried all the way from that appointment, Owensboro, back to Hartford, and I just, I was so mad. I was mad that nobody cared that the man that had, I, I couldn't even, I mean, I couldn't even go to sleep at night. I still right. haven't slept. I still really have slept in little spurts of 20 and 30 minute increments, and then I wake up screaming. I wake up having dreams. I wake up, and I take a nap in the day when it's daylight, and there are people there, and I still wake up screaming with dreams. And so I'm exhausted. I am mad at everybody. I'm mad at the police department. I'm mad at every adult in authority in the whole in the whole world. Mm-hmm. I'm mad at people in general for not demanding truth. This is called truth talk, right? Right. For not demanding truth. I'm so mm-hmm. mad. And now I'm mad that they gave me all these drugs. Yeah. Like, what right, right do they have to pump somebody full of drugs that could make their child die? Yeah. And he actually said the chances of your, if you miscarrying this baby are really high. Or be born with all these def- birth defects. So I am in a terrible place. I mean... I can't I would, imagine having all of that on top of just almost being murdered. At 17. At 17 years old. Yeah. That's yeah. so much to carry for a grown adult. It was, uh, it was, it was really beyond anything I could convey in words. So moms were driving home and mom was saying, and you know, until we're about 30 or 35, we kind of think our moms know everything, or I did. <laughs> and then you, one day you go, wait a minute, mama didn't say this one day like this. Then you kind of go, well, like, wait, this doesn't matter. <laughs> maybe they don't know everything, but I, well, when you're 17, you think they know everything. Right. And I didn't, I didn't know anything about being pregnant. I started asking mom about the delivery. I was green as grass. <laughs> like, I did not know anything. And I started asking her, and she said, oh, that's going to hurt. You know, I just, yeah, almost like I'm, after hearing her, I'm like, oh, my Lord, I don't know if I can get through this. <laughs> but then she said, that baby's smart. Mom, what does that mean? That, that man trying to kill you is marked that baby. And that baby, it's marked. There'll be, there'll be things wrong with this baby. She thought it was cursed. Because that's what she, that, I mean, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. You know? It's marked. She used the word marked. And, and the doctor had talked about the drugs, not the attack as much. He said the trauma of the attack was really not good for 
a, a, there's a word besides fetus, but it, it's even before it's a fetus. It's, there's another word, zygote maybe or something. The, um, I, um, the tra- that much trauma on your body in that first vulnerable few days is... Yeah. You you probably wouldn't even carry that baby. It would just be gone. You wouldn't even know you're pregnant. Right. So... But I, but here we were. I was still pregnant, and she had she had hung on, you know. Yeah. So, the next seven and a half months, seven months in a week, whatever it was from that day. On, yeah, it's a z- zygote. Zygote. Z y g o t e, and then an embryo, and then a fetus. Yes. Yeah. So that was you know, and he he used those words and said, because I don't know what day. I assume you were pregnant probably a week, two weeks before this attack based on examining you. Mm-hmm. So, on that drive home from Owensboro, we were going through that this area we call the bottoms and there's just farmland on both sides and often it floods. And I remember just looking across, I mean, a very familiar road, I've driven in a thousand million times. And I remember looking back over that bottoms and going, I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do this. Yeah. I can't. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I can't do this. I was I was sleep deprived and my mind was ready. You, you see the emoji where the brain explodes? Mm-hmm. I could have been the girl for that emoji in that moment. And then my mom was saying the baby smarts, so here we are. I, I, I didn't get, I wasn't getting anything from anybody. I go home. Really, nobody says anything. It's just kind of a lot of. Oh, you're pregnant. That's so nice. Well, you don't know the whole story. It may not be. It may not be a. You know, I may lose this baby in a week. You know, it was just right. so much. In, in, there was so much unknown. You couldn't enjoy it. Yeah. Couldn't enjoy it. I couldn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy anything about the pregnancy. Yeah, I was in mental torment. So, time passed. Which probably makes you mad again at your perpetrator because right. not only has he stolen, you know, your sanity, but he's also stolen your opportunity to enjoy your first pregnancy. He, yeah. It was totally yeah. robbed. Yeah. I went home and I learned to like to eat. I did do that. I gained 50 50 pounds. I started enjoying food. It was kind of my go-to. I learned about comfort food for the first time in my life, except for milkshakes. I'd never been much of an eater. Didn't care about food at all. I learned to like food. I learned to like cornbread, roast beef and gravy and cornbread, all just with the the gravy on the cornbread, which is, doesn't sound good to y'all probably. But I learned to really enjoy that. My sister cooked it, and I liked it. Learned to like enjoy a carrot cake and a, a big old bowl of mac and cheese and things like that. Um, and I started at 105, and by the time I went to the hospital, I weighed 155 or so. <laughs> and I would love to weigh that today. I'd <laughs> be like, wow, I am so skinny. <laughs> but I thought I was like the heifer of the world. <laughs> but um, the, the heifer of the whole world. Of the whole world. The at, world. One, at 155. You were the heifer. At 155. <laughs> So we spent the winter just breathing. I, I was just breathing. There was no more, no less. I couldn't go home. Finally, um, I had a nephew that was, I guess he's about 5'11", 
five years younger than me, so he would have been about 12. Mm-hmm. Right at the age to hate uh, some of the disrupts your life. Mm-hmm. So he's 12, 13, somewhere like that. And I wanted to go home. I, I, I needed to find how to live as an adult and not be at my sister's every day, yeah. every night. And your husband worked the night shift. Right. Uh, from like midnight till eight in the morning. Yeah. And, and and I felt the need to nest. I didn't know that's what it's called. I don't think we had that word then. We were far too, you know, country bumpkin to have <laughs> cool lingo. But I didn't know that the the word was nest. But I had a need as I began to see my belly grow to prepare. I had a need. I felt this need to to make a home. Yeah. And I wanted to go home, so I made my nephew, I had two nephews, but the younger one, his name's Marty, um, soft, real softy kind of guy, and uh, really a special bond with him, because yeah. he babysat me at night for maybe five or six years, wow. He and he hated it, I mean, <laughs> he hated, probably hated me, and he had it, and he got, you know, they'd have to get him for school, and we lived close enough that they met, they arranged for that, you know. And any any kid that's 13, 14, 15, 16, I mean, this isn't his maybe senior year that he stayed with me at night. Wow. As a girlfriend, he's dating, and yet he can't even go stay in his own house. Yeah. Unless it's the weekend. And then that wasn't always the case. And so every night he would have to come and stay, and he sa- he says now... He's sixty, and he'll say, "Yeah, you would, you would get me up and say, your breakfast is in the oven. Get it and eat it and shut up." And I'm going back to bed. <laughs> I mean, we're oh two kids, goodness. really. I'm seventeen. He's twelve. How, yeah. What do you expect? <laughs> yeah. I, I probably should have just said, "Eat some cereal," <laughs> and I probably did do that. But he says I made him cinnamon rolls. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. And then I probably ate all the. There's eight left over. He ate one. I probably ate seven. <laughs> so, so he got me through, and I, I was not, I was not deep in my faith enough to to know about much. But on the night of the attack, um, when I was in the ER. When the doctor was sewing me up, in marches my mom. Now this this was the root of my faith. Here's the the here's the mustard seed kind of root mm-hmm. um, in in my soul today of my faith. So when I'm in, when I'm in the hospital and my throat is wide open and I'm in this shock mode, um, in marches my mom. Mm-hmm. And about 15, 20, 21 people from her church on September 5th. Now, I'm backtracking a little bit. The woman that said my baby was marked. Now, just just think what I'm telling you here. The mama in her was so fearful for me. And she she didn't filter that a lot sometimes. But the faith in her and the way that the Lord would speak to her, and then she would just, she would just act on it. So on this night, she was at a little uh, prayer meeting. I mean, we're talking 73, no cell phones. There was not even a landline. No way for her to know this except the Lord. 
I hear that dog again. <laughs> no way for her to notice except the Lord. She's at this little church, and she interrupts the service at, I think, around 7.15, which is like minutes before this attack. Maybe a minute, or maybe at the very same time, but within the realm of minutes. She stands up, interrupts, and says, Kathy's in trouble. Of course, they knew who I was. And I want us to pray. And stop this. They were, they were, doing a, uh, they were singing a song. Mm-hmm. She, she shuts that song down. Wouldn't you love to have people like that in your church? Yeah. <laughs> I, I wonder how Aaron would like that. <laughs> like Aaron and Amanda, hey, we're stopping your song. We're going to do what I want to do right now. But in the but in the moment, thank God for people like her. Right. She shuts the song down. Small church, twenty people probably on a Wednesday night in September. Half of them were probably on stage singing. <laughs> yes, or and playing. She shuts the song down and says, "Kathy's in trouble. Will you pray?" They did. She said, "I'm leaving." The Lord told me she's at the hospital in the emergency room. That's some bold faith. Yeah. To, bold faith. I mean, if. She would have been wrong. She would have, you know, come yeah. across so crazy. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, she would. And you know, here's the thing. I know, and I interject this: people that kind of do that God listening stuff, where they hear the voice of the Lord, they do come across crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All the time. <laughs> absolutely. All the time. And my mom was not perfect, and there was lots of things about her. If we go down a parenting list, she, you know, we would all be going, she did what? Yeah. But that ability to hear the voice of she the Lord. She got that right. Oh, my word. Well, it changed my life. Yeah. Because she not only came to the hospital and said, the Lord told me you were here. The Lord told me that your life was in danger. That I thought it was a car wreck. But the Lord told me you'd be here. She brought the church with her. They closed the service down. They all got oh their cars goodness. and did a train. They did like a, you know, it wasn't a thousand people. It was just a small amount of people. Kind of got like people. a funeral procession. Like, we're, they're all just coming. They just closed the service and they all came to the... That's how much they believed that she knew what she was talking about. Right. And they thought she was fixing to walk into the trauma of maybe having a child that's either dead or nearly dead, which mm-hmm. was the case, the nearly right. dead. And they all came with her. Now, that it, the the big thing, it, all of the emotions of not being believed, mm-hmm. of not being fought for, of not being understood, of not being maybe um, loved correctly, even by people that loved me well, they just yeah. didn't know how to love me correctly in that moment. All of that's overshadowed. Yeah. It, it, at, at my at this point in my life, at sixty six. All that's overshadowed by that one act that she shut down the service, got in her car and said, the Lord told me that she's in trouble and she's at the Ohio County Hospital. Not, 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 not. The Lord said that we need to pray for my daughter. She's going through some things. And really, I wasn't going, I was not going through some things. Our life had been a train wreck since my dad had died. So it was the family was in a messy just nobody could find themselves. But she was specific. She but in that moment, it was hospital, ER, I'm headed there, she's there. Yeah. No phones, no cell, no, no landlines, no pagers, no nothing. 
And there was no ambulance run. There was no, I mean, it, there was no one to know that. So it's so, cool to look and see how God was, Yeah, you know, he had his hand there. And then, too, what you didn't even mention earlier was the fact that the doctor, the one that sewed you up, because like you said, there was never a doctor on call. He just happened to be yes. a block away. Didn't you say he was in a parking lot? He was garage? a block away in a parking lot, speaking to a man that was involved with building him a house. I think it was the guy that owned the lumber company, and they were standing at seven something at night, mm-hmm. in a in a gravel lot, a block away, kind of close to that Dairy Queen I was talking about, talking, and he hears my blood curdling scream. Oh my gosh! And gets in his car, and came and like right at immediately. The, like, That's insane. If he hadn't been right there, yeah, I mean, he was, yeah. probably really did save my life. Your Just, scream literally saved your life. Yeah, yeah. This the scream ran the devil off. The devil that was trying to kill me. Yeah. And then the scream was heard by the helper. Now, there's a message there. Y'all can preach it. But that that same scream that scares off your enemy also is heard by. Alerts. Yeah. Alerts those that are going to come and help rescue. Wow, that's good. Many times, you know, it's just, it's it's a God scream and God comes. But don't ever believe that God didn't place that man in that parking lot on that night. Absolutely. He probably should have been there at five and he didn't make the time frame or six and he didn't make the time frame. But the Lord knew from the beginning of time that he needed to be in that parking lot at seven eleven mm-hmm. or seven twelve, whatever yeah. that was to hear me scream to come and save my life. So you would have life. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Right. So we walk through this, season of me having this little nugget of faith or this deposit of faith that changes you know I did I never drank I wasn't a, a, a drug taker at all I mean except for when the hospital administered it <laughs> which you know was not anything I asked for didn't I don't like drugs I don't like alcohol I hate it I hate I hate the effects it have some people's lives I could have done it had every opportunity in my I've had every opportunity even as a young girl access to money access to anything I wanted and yet I couldn't do it mm-hmm. it's not in me to do that mm-hmm. now the Twinkie I would have probably <laughs> I did develop this thing where I'm all good with a piece of cake or a Twinkie another family trait <laughs> but in this moment of knowing I'm pregnant of knowing that that really believe in the outcome's not going to be good. Yeah. I started to dig in. Um, didn't have enough sense to find a Bible. We didn't have Bible apps. But I started to just kind of go, okay, I think I have purpose. Yeah. Okay. I think I have purpose. Yeah. All right. I think I do. I, I don't know what. I don't know. Is it to be the mom of a handicapped child? Maybe. Um, but I feel purpose. The Lord didn't let me die. I had purpose. And there was there was this back and forth fight for my sanity in my mind. The sleeping was not good. I didn't, of course, take any sleep help in those days. I would never have after I found out I was pregnant. I wouldn't have even asked for it. There was no such thing as Tylenol PM. I wouldn't have taken it anyway. Would certainly wouldn't have taken a sleep prescription. So I slept 20, 30 minutes at a time. Just never slept well. So I struggled with sleep deprivation all the time. Which will make you crazy in itself. Make you crazy in itself. (laughs) So you're thinking it's never rational, but 
and, and no job. I mean, I didn't really have a job at that moment, and just kind of the whole, and, and a lot of isolation. Spent a lot of time alone. Fighting for my sanity, fighting to not be mad and angry at adults, and praying and begging God for a healthy child. Yeah. So we make it through. The spring comes and I have a cousin in Chicago six months to the day, March 5th, 1974. Mm. Her name was Peggy, mother of, I think, six, five or six little kids, 29 years old. She was accosted while she stopped to get a Coke. She was leaving a Brownie Scout meeting. She was a Brownie leader for one of her little girls and she was murdered by four men. Oh my gosh. This is six months to the day. We're talking, there's something about this fifth. First cousin, my, my mother, our, our mothers are sisters. And that put me back into, uh, just a really bad place mentally. Sure. Just terrible place, just a, a, a pit. Um, they never, they never arrested anybody. This is kind of, it's an un, definitely an unsolved murder. I do, I've done a lot of reading to try to find if there's any new news about it, and there is not, but it was a random act. And she, there was, it was, um, there was, it was a backlash from a gang. They had arrested some gang members. Of course, they, this was Chicago. It's not Beaver Dam, Hartford. Right. It's a different, you know, very different um, demographic and a different setting. And it, they had, there were several, like, just random murders to retaliate mm -hmm. for them arresting some of these drug people. Yeah. She just seemed to be one of them. They took her to an abandoned house a block from her parents' house. And they kept her alive for several days. So there, in the aftermath, we realized that she could have looked out this window and seen her parents' house. Yeah. Oh my God. That's and so they awful. held her hostage and cut her fingers off and cut oh. her breasts off and oh shot, her, shot her with a deer rifle. So we're talking brutal, brutal, oh brutal, That's brutal. Awful. They said she, in the autopsy report that she fought so hard that it was like running. I forget. I mean, I'm not, it's been a long time ago, but running, it would be like somebody that was running. Her muscles were, and she was fit and, you know, very athletic type that she had fought so hard to try to, I guess, to get away. So that, so here's my mother's sister has got, a funeral for a 29-year-old daughter with all these grandchildren that are now without a mom. I'm six months pregnant. I can't even go. I can't leave. And I, I, I couldn't have gone anyway. My emotions were a train wreck. So all of a sudden, I take another deep dive into Crazyville. Fear. Can't sleep. All of the things. So by the time... May rolls around. My sister, Anita, she says, have you, have you got any desire to do anything to, you know, to try to get you, I mean, would you, would you want to go somewhere? 
Now, I'm the kid that my parents never vacationed, ever. Really? Ever. I'd never seen the ocean until after my dad died, and we had airplanes and we had money. But he he worked all the time, and my mother didn't like to vacation. She wanted to sleep on her bed with her pillow in her house, period. (laughs) And when my sister had her first child in North Carolina, she lived at the, like, over by where the horses went on the ocean. Mm-hmm. What's that? Oh gosh, I don't know. She lived at Cherry Point in North Carolina. It was a, it was a base. Anita lived there when her oldest was born. Yeah. And mom went there, and it was before I forty was bo- was built. We had to go through the gorge mm-hmm. over the mountains. Oh wow! No way to explain. I was only three years old, and I still remember the horrificness of the travel. But we didn't stay until she had the baby because mom said, "I just can't stay away from home this long." And we mm-hmm. left and came back, and Anita had that baby without my mother being there. That's how much she did not want to stay away from home. Oh, my gosh. Anita was 16, maybe 17. So, I've never been anywhere. Yeah. And Anita says to me, and you all are going to get this, and you've ne- I've never told you this story, but it's going to mean something to you. Like, I probably when I die, there will be a, there will be some sort of a tribute of pictures from Disney World yes. with all my grandchildren because I have all the way back to Edie being an infant. The girl, my girls, were, we were when I was raising Crystal and Kelly when they were little. I would get I would be so broke I couldn't afford anything, but I planned every single year to take them to Disney, to Disney and yeah. I'd save for that because it's a big deal to me. Okay, so I'm eight months pregnant. I've gained 50 pounds. I'm, my feet are so swollen, I'm wearing men's shoes. <laughs> <clears throat> I am. It's terrible. <laughs> I'm a sweller, you know, heart valve. Later in life, you learn why, but I was a sweller. Um, and she says, would you like to go on a trip? And I'm like, well, that, that'd be neat. I don't, I've never been on trips. Yeah. Right. Okay. We went on our honeymoon to Gatlinburg, and that was like, you know, Four yeah. hours away. We two, well, we stayed two hours, I mean two nights, and and I'm going to be honest, I hope this podcast goes everywhere, because this is the funniest thing ever. He was so enthralled with them having multiple television channels, <laughs> but he didn't leave the room. So an eventful honeymoon. It was, <laughs> TV all, it was so wonderful. <laughs> Probably where I conceived Crystal. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I brought his food to the room. Oh my gosh. Oh my god. <laughs> there it is. I just ratted you out. He's gonna hate this. <laughs> oh my brought gosh. it to the room and I know where I got it. I can tell you Lums, a, a restaurant called Lums that was on the main drag in Gatlinburg and they had beer steamed hot dogs and that was what he wanted to eat every every you know like class two nights class is oozing it's oozing (laughs) the kentucky redneck class is oozing so that was my that was my um experience with trips. <laughs> I had a trip to Gatlinburg for two days and I and ha- had hot dogs. <laughs> hot dogs. And I went to North Carolina when I was three and didn't stay for the baby. So I, I, I've never been on trips, really. 
So Anita says to me, would you like to go on a trip? And I was like, yeah, tell me what that looks like. And she said, well, I, there's this new place in Florida. I mean, we didn't have internet and we didn't have, I didn't watch, I was never a TV watcher, mm -hmm. ever. I mean, still we, aren't. Still aren't. So I, mean, I didn't know, I didn't know anything about the world. All I knew about was the world I was in and that was just my little circle right there in my, my house. Right. And she said, well, there's this new place that's, that's called Disney World. This new place called Disney World. <laughs> That's yeah. so crazy. I don't know what time when Disney World opened. That would be something so I don't to know Google. If it's that new. No, uh, no. Disneyland opened first. Okay. Oh, so right. Maybe Disney World was Google, new. Google. Disney World had. Google, Disney World. Well, Disney World just had their 50 year last year, so it must have been 1971. So it was brand new. Yeah. Right? Oh my didn't gosh. they just have their 50 year last they year? Did. So it was 19. Well, so so she says That's crazy. Hashtag old. <laughs> if your if your doctor will let you go, we will load up the car. Like I was in a bad place. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, after my cousin was murdered, my mentals. Well, I can't place. imagine. Yeah. Well, yeah, like, own trauma. And I'm sure it kind of added survivor's guilt and all kinds of stuff on it. It was all kinds of stuff. And then I was, as this, my belly was huge, and I knew this birth, and there were no ultrasounds. Mm -hmm. We didn't have ultrasounds. You didn't know what was going to go down. Yeah. And as that that anxiety built for the for the birth of this boy or girl that might might be healthy, might survive, might be born, and then live a day, right. you know, we didn't know. So as that mounted, my sister having that same gene that I possess, thought, I'll fix this. I'll make her happy. Mm -hmm. Right. I will spend the, you know, the money I have saved. And and so we loaded up in the car. And she took, you know, her and her husband, Steve, and their two boys, and me and John Paul. And we headed to Florida. Mm -hmm. And we stayed at the uh, Contemporary Resort. <laughs> In Disney World. Now, mm -hmm. if you've ever been to Disney World, yeah. you know that's right there. And I'm I'm living in Hartford, Kentucky, and we live a very simple existence. Mm -hmm. I never flown. I, my parent, my dad had airplanes, so small small planes. Mm -hmm. Never been to Europe, and never been on a cruise. You know, there's a lot of nevers in my life at this point with travel. Mm -hmm. So as we pull in to this place. And I see all of those lights. And I see that for nineteen seventy three this hotel was like one of the eighth was the eighth wonder of the world. Right, it had a train going through <laughs> yeah. it. It had a train going through it. And it was like the food was shaped like Mickey ears and everything was happy and there were balloons everywhere and yeah. there was a castle and right. there were lights on the castle and there was all of this stuff. So here I am. At this point now, I've turned 18, and I'm waddling, mm -hmm. and I'm very pregnant, and I don't think I should have been traveling, truly, but we go to Disney World, and I, for the first time, you know, my father had died at 13, I had always had the burden of an adult right. since that time frame, so I've been an adult for years at, at this point, I've been through this trauma of similar to going to hell and back. Right. And then all of a sudden... You're at Disney World. <laughs> it's Friday. It's a Friday night in May 1974. And this riddled mind 
that had been just honestly pulverized by life. I'm walking down Main Street looking at the Castle of Disney World. Never been anywhere. And all of a sudden, I'm like... You're in the happiest place on earth. So <laughs> this is what it feels like to be a child. Yeah. Aww. <laughs> so this is what it feels like. Yeah. To be a child. And you were eight months pregnant. You didn't get I was eight months pregnant. <laughs> and I've never been a child. Yeah. Disney does have that effect. It just yeah. automatically... Yeah. Makes you feel like this innocent little. So that's where it started. Hopeful the love child. Of Disney. Yeah. yeah, and I, I lost my cares mm-hmm. for those days. Yeah. For the first time in my life, I realized the benefit of a break. Yeah. And you know, today we do vacation rentals and we do a lot of travel. And I'm getting stuffy. There must be something in this room. Um. I promote and I encourage people to take the time. I say it all the time: buy the cake or eat the cake. Buy, buy, the, cake. buy the cake and then eat the cake. <laughs> buy uh, eat the cake, buy the shoes, take the trip, mm-hmm. do it. Buy the house, mm-hmm. you know, live large, no regrets. And that mindset started on that on that Disney trip. Wow, it did. So. A little bit of a reprieve mentally. Mm-hmm. A little bit of hopeful. I mean, I know that sounds so silly. And there are going to be Disney haters that are saying, oh, they're terrible. Their politics are terrible. Yes, they are. Agreed. Mm-hmm. But this is 1973 and their politics weren't terrible. Yeah. And I wasn't into politics in 1973. All I knew is that I was a miserable young lady. Who got a little bit of joy. Who got a little bit of joy yeah. out of a change of scenery. Mm-hmm. And seeing outside of my little circle of hell, when you break out of that circle and you go and you sit and look at the ocean, mm-hmm. or you go see the castle and you become a child again. Yeah. I was 18 and I had never been a child, so I learned, oh, I never watch cartoons. Like, I'm... Wow. Well, Steve says to me, how did that happen? Yeah. I don't know. I, I've never seen A White Christmas. Yeah. I've never seen A Wonderful Life. I had a weird, I've had a weird existence and yeah. not somehow I didn't allow myself the time I, I you know I'm so worried about getting things done that I don't ever chill y'all know mm-hmm. that about me mm-hmm. but when I go to Disney I chill yeah because something inside me goes back to that experience and yeah. I give myself a moment. I give myself a permission slip. Right. To stop and let that child come back out. Yeah. And I know that there's probably a million people with stories similar, but that's my story. So we take this Disney trip. It's all-encompassing for me mentally. It's helpful. We come home. I spent the next week or so swimming in her pool. Jumping on a trampoline. Nobody told me you shouldn't do that. <laughs> Very hard. You should never jump on a trampoline when you're fixed to have a baby. Yeah. It was the 70s. As I said, my parents, I mean, my, it's the 70s, and nobody around me said, that's not okay. Yeah. I didn't know. So I jumped on the trampoline, swam in the pool, got a good tan, and I was so big with child that it was disturbing. It's starting to be disturbing. The doctor said, you're full term. I don't know what we're going to do here. 
you need to have this baby. So Mama, once again, let's talk about Mama and her pregnancy stories. She said, well, I know what you need. You need a good dose of the castor oil. <laughs> that, on my last mm-hmm. appointment to the OB. And I said, well, what will that do, Mom? Well, that'll get them pains going and you'll have that baby. Well, I heard that stuff tastes awful. It ain't gonna hurt you. When we was kids, Mom give everyone, Mom was one of 10 kids. Mom would line us up and make us take that, clean us out. (laughs) (laughs) So she went and got two bottles of castor oil. Two bottles. You were sitting there drinking it? And put it in orange juice. It took me 40 years to drink orange juice. I do now, but it took 40 years. It ruined it for you. For me to like it. Ruined it for me. Put it in an orange juice and maybe drink it. And I... Oh, my. Oh, my. I had... Yeah. I won't give you all the graphic details. (laughs) I don't know that anybody wants... Somebody might be having lunch. But um, I woke up the morning... Of June the 5th, once again it's the 5th, mm-hmm. nine months to the day from the day of the attack Wow! to the day. Mm-hmm. I woke up that morning at 3 a.m. I spent the night at my mother's house after the large cocktail of orange juice <laughs> and <laughs> two <laughs> bottles. Two bottles. <laughs> Listen, she's going to do it up. She was going to get that baby out of there. <laughs> she was ready to see that marked baby. I drank that stuff, went to bed, woke up screaming. I said, I think I gotta go, like, bathroom. So I go and get, I slept in her room, in her bed, had a little half bath off of it with a furry carpet that I don't know why people put carpet in their bathrooms back then. They did, they put carpet bathrooms in those days. So gross. Furry, it was in, I think about it, it was like I could, ugh. But I was, that that furry, I could see that bathroom, and I sat on that commode. Can I say commode on podcast? Yeah, yeah. I sat on that commode, and I thought I had to go. And when I pushed, I was like, ooh. (laughs) I said, Mom, come here. I need you to look. And she said, oh, I can, I think I see... That baby's dropped, and oh my we're fixing to see the top of that baby's head. So they popped me in the car, but it all kind of stopped. I went, I just tightened up. So okay, they got me in the car, got me to the hospital, and I really, it all did stop. I didn't allow the casserole to take its nature course. It one one good hard pain, and I kind of. I don't, know, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know how to explain it, but I kind of just shut it down. Yeah, I'm not sure you could always do that, but I did. But on this t- time, I did. And we got to the hospital. They put me in. I was definitely starting um, the process. I think that I got scared. Maybe that's why I was trying to shut it down. So we end up with a few hours of labor. Again, they drugged me up. That's what they did back then. No epidurals in those days. You had saddle blocks and drugs. So I was very drugged up. And a lot of pain, of course. Very much anticipating, even in spite of the drugs, 
the fear had just, the fear owned me, every shred of me. And, you know, have you ever had, well, you probably haven't, but if you've ever taken, like had surgery and you're, uh, you're unconscious and you're trying to fight out of it and you're trying to reason out of it and you want to ask the surgeon how the surgery, I've done this multiple mm -hmm. times. You're trying to get out of the fog to ask the questions and you're, you're, you just can't get out of the fog, but your mind's going. Right. Your mind's asking, but you can't get your mouth to work. And so it was like that. I was on these drugs, but I was so wanting to know, you know, how what they thought, how this baby is. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know that they gave me any clarity on anything. But I know he had, but that, you know, at that moment when they pushed that baby out, of course, at this point, you have saddle block. You don't feel the push. Yeah. They give you a shot in your back, and it's just, it's terrible. But, epidural, yeah. Well, it's not an epidural. It was just one oh, big wow. shot at the very end. At the very end, you get a shot where you don't feel that. Mm. You don't feel the baby actually come out. Yeah. Come out. So, he, but I was caught, you know, I had enough sense about me. To just be, you know, look, and of course I'm nearsighted, didn't have my glasses on, so I'm looking for a limb. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for limbs. Yeah. yeah. You know, I want to see the limbs. I want to see if the, there's arms and legs. Right. And he held, he holds this baby up, and I'm like I said, you know, we're nearsighted people. We are. And, but I could see that she's got legs and arms, and I'm drugged and I'm squalling. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, she has legs and arms. Yeah. And then he holds this baby over me. Old Dr. Harrison in Owensboro, mm -hmm. he, who passed away right after Kelly was born. Similar story to Elvis. Some of y'all get that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he says to me, girl, you just birthed the prettiest baby I've ever laid my eyes on. Oh. He probably said that to everybody. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably why everybody liked him. But she was absolutely a beautiful, beautiful baby. I mean, yeah. it's like God didn't just make her okay. Right. It's like he gave me the jackpot. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. And, you know, tons of black hair. She looked like, well, she needed a hair bow or mm -hmm. ponytails <laughs> at birth. Yeah. And this beautiful kind of a little bit of she honestly looked like she might be a little Hispanic maybe yeah beautiful little complexion and these great big blue eyes and a little butterball fat you know <laughs> eight pounds almost nine mm -hmm. pounds and I can't tell you how the happy girl got a little bit of a chance to live yeah I'm talking me yeah my happy my happy was released that yeah. day. And I kind of came out of that after she was born and she was okay. And I'm like, Lord, you did this for me. You did this for me. You alone. And I came out of that day knowing that in spite of the injustice of man, mm -hmm. the faithfulness of God was such a real thing. Yeah. Yeah, oh absolutely. my word, it was such a real thing. And it's been a journey, a walk. Mm -hmm. The man's never been arrested. 
Yeah, as far as I know, he's alive. You, know, you lived in the same town? Your kids went to school together? Yep. My girl, I had to condition my girls to stay away from his children. He stalked me. He stalked, I mean, there's been times he's he's followed me taking my girls into trying Easter dresses. Oh my goodness. At his mall in Owensboro. He would sit outside the dressing room. It's, it was traumatic. It was total traumatic. Totally traumatic. And there was a season where he that he left the area after there was a lot of people that said, oh, we've heard stories and looks like she was right about him. Yeah. <clears throat> this, this unsolved situation and that unsolved situation, all those point to him. You are his last and only victim. No. He was... went on to do this to multiple other women in your area. Yeah. Yes. And never got caught. Never got, he never went to jail. I mean, I'm sure that there are people like me out there that know who the perpetrator was of their situation. I'm not sure that mine wasn't probably the highest profile where somebody said, that's him. Yeah. Right. I think that other people might not have could maybe described him lived to tell it, yeah. you know. Um, unsolved. I think there's probably a lot of unsolved things. Do you think you were his first victim? No. No. There had already been a couple murders, right? In parking lots? There were some the next year. Gotcha. In other towns close by. Gosh. But he came from out of state. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were no background checks in those days. And there was no... Security cameras? There was no meaningful way in my... From what I can understand to know what the history was. Right. We just don't was bad. Because his, his traits were... Um, dark yeah. at best and they were in they manifested in many ways and then the town got wise Yeah, he ended up leaving spent several years I think in a facility mm-hmm. uh, health facility healthcare facility I thought I thought he died and when I wrote my first book I had someone that messaged me and said he's not he's alive and here's where he lives. Here's his Facebook. And sure enough, wow. sure enough, probably a very old man. I would say what he would be in his late seventies or eighties, early eighties now, somewhere in that range. So the end of the story is that sometimes. The, just the God-given gift that he gives us to fight mm-hmm. for our truth, yeah, for sanity, for normalcy. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to go as far as to say that was a good thing, because mm-hmm. it was not. But I will go as far as to say that what happened in the big picture of my life that I learned if I didn't get real serious about it. You know, and I know as, and I'm, and there have been seasons in my life where people are like, wow, she's tough. Or she can, you don't want to deal with her. I mean, during the music years, right. I, I, I think I had a reputation which was really not deserved, in my opinion. You know, when I was the momager, like when I was, <laughs> Managing the Crab Family, mm-hmm. managing a lot of music, musical pieces of our lives, publishing and 
you know, maybe a little bit of a record label manager and this and that. And people thought I was a little tough, and I, and I might have been. But there's a point on September the 5th, 1973, there was a line in the sand. And and I had to get tough or die. Mm-hmm, right. And, and I'm not just talking about physically. I had to get tough mentally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had to muscle up my mental faculties to cope, mm-hmm. to problem solve. You know, therapy is nothing but talking through and problem solving in your mind yeah. or to take the pieces that don't make sense mm-hmm. the pieces that are horrible that that take your soul and crush it and trying to reposition those in your psyche and put them in a spot where you can still live your life with right. them yeah. you can't get rid of them I cannot get rid of the memory I've sat here and cried today 50, almost 50 years later right. the memories are real they're vivid the, 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 the images are there the sounds are in my head. It's never going away. No. But everybody that has trauma, and everybody has it, y'all. Mm-hmm. Everybody has it. Absolutely. We have to learn where to put it. We have to We have to find that faith moment where we said, that happened to me, but God. Yeah. That happened to me, but here I stand. That happened to me. That was real. That man did that to me when I was nine. He did the things that no man should do to a mm-hmm. little girl. That did happen to me. But here I am. I'm 37 years old and I survived it. But God, i got to find out where to put that where I can live, cohabitate with that memory. And not let it define you. And not let it define, not let it define whether or not it can be our testimony, if you choose for Mm -hmm. it to be. It can be the roadmap for the next gal Mm -hmm. to survive, I think. 90% 90% of our stories are for other people, not right. for us. Yeah. Hence a podcast. But we have to allow those horrible things to be that building block in that house. Mm-hmm. And we can still have that beautiful house on top yeah. of those building blocks. Absolutely. The horrible things, the fa- my father died, my mama left, my, you know, whatever those things are in your life. And... A man tried to kill me. A man murdered my cousin six months later to the day. The doctor told me my child was not going to live or she would have horrible birth defects. And this is all in a year. I mean, this is my ushering into my adulthood. Yeah. And because of those, there was no coddling. There was no entitlement. Yeah. There was no paved road. Because of that, I learned to fight. Right. I learned to rationalize and put things in perspective and put them tidily away in my mind. Yeah. I learned to be a problem solver. Have I done everything right? Of course not. Probably done more wrong than right. I, I don't I'm not trying to say, oh yay, I did this right. Yeah. I didn't do this right, but the point is I did it. Yeah. Right. I survived. Mm-hmm. I, I, I got up another day to tell another story. That's I right. put my feet on the floor one more time. Right. And consecutively have done that throughout a life with a lot of roller coaster moments. Mm. And here we are. And here we are. Springdale, Arkansas. <laughs> Springdale, Arkansas. Fifty years later, almost. Forty nine to be wow. exact. And y'all are twenty two. Mm-hmm. And because we fought and I did not go to a mental institution in nineteen seventy three. You exist. That's true. 
So today, I just say to everybody listening, fight for your sanity. Yes. Um, don't medicate it. Don't medicate it with alcohol. Mm-hmm. Don't medicate it with drugs. Don't go to a doctor that's going to medicate it and give you an approval stamp yeah. to become a, a, a retail drug addict at the pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Find placement for your pain and let it live alongside the good pieces of your life. Don't give it a front seat. Don't give it the head seat at your table. Yeah. Let it eat the crumbs off the under the table. Let the good things in your life be what you dwell on. The word says, think on lovely things. Yeah. Think about Disney World. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's my lovely thing. And I, and I don't, I don't, I'm not glamorizing or trying to spiritualize Disney World. But I'm telling you, think on things that are good that the Lord has done. Yeah. The Lord's, whether you believe this or not, the Lord gave my sister the idea to take me to Disney World so that I could learn that it's okay to drop your stress, Mm -hmm. to drop Mm -hmm. your anxiety, the anxiety-ridden life that I was living, and be a child for five days. And and that was a lesson for me. When I'm at a point of boiling over, what do I do? Take a break. Go to Florida. I do. Take a break. It, It will keep you alive. So, we're wrapping it up. We're in Springdale. The buses are running. They're waiting on us to leave. We're going to go have church with some people tonight. But thank you all for joining us for this intense memory session from a hotel room in Springdale, Arkansas. I am so happy that I teamed up with Gather Podcasts to bring you all these podcasts. I think they're going to be beneficial for me as well. I think it's like vomiting up your soul when you talk about your life. <laughs> Make sure you like, subscribe, share, and leave a rating and review so that this podcast makes it to the top. At the end of the day, we really just want to get the truth out. Truth Talk with Kathy Crabhanna. You all be blessed in Jesus' name today.